Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome, everyone, to the crux of the story, and good morning, Gary. How are you? Hey, Mike. Good, good. Thank you. We have as our guest today, Jolie Hunt, the CEO of Hunt and Gather, which bills itself as a high-touch marketing and communications agency and counts among its many clients a number of media and tech companies from A&E, Bloomberg, and the Wall Street Journal to Airbnb. Amazon and IBM. But before we do that, let's turn to the news. First, I want to take a moment to share how disturbing and disappointing it was to see in the news throughout North America tales of racism and violence towards people of Asian descent, culminating sadly in the shootings in Atlanta. Terrible. You know, events are made worse when people in leadership as well as each of us as individuals do not recognize, I think, discrimination for what it is and take action to confront hate in all its forms. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Mm -hmm. And and I kind of use that as kind of a little bit of a setup. One of the big miscommunications coming out of of Atlanta or the Atlanta area shootings that left eight dead, including six Asian women, were the remarks of Captain Jay Baker, who was a spokesperson for the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department, who said at the time that the 21-year-old white male who was charged in the shooting was having a really bad day, almost Mm -hmm. as if making an excuse for something that was really horrific. The backlash for those remarks was swift and rightfully construed as insensitive to the victims. In recovery mode, the department insisted that the captain's comments were not intended to disrespect any of the victims. Since all this happened, you know, it's like we always have to worry about what's in our past, right? Because several photos have popped up on Facebook that are just from March and April of this past year in 2020, showing Captain Baker promoting t-shirts for sale that read COVID-19 imported virus from China. Gary, what's the lesson here? Well, you know, Mike, I went back and watched the tape of this press conference and the way he presented those words. And just on its own, it seemed to me to be really offhand and insensitive, Mm -hmm. to say the least. And so you can maybe forgive someone, as we've talked about, those podium jobs and and those press conferences are tough. And, 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 but when you when you twin it, when you pair it with the obvious insensitivity and offensive nature of his social media, mm-hmm. then you tend to not give that person the benefit of the doubt. And as our, our guest last week, David Murray, talked about words really mattering mm-hmm. in this thing. And I think in this case, it certainly does. And I, I just don't think you can have people with that kind of responsibility to speak for an entire organization that have those kinds of insensitivities or those points of view, particularly when they're public servants. Yeah, and, well, and you know, we saw that we, we saw that with the previous occupant in the White House, right? China exactly. Virus, Kung flu. Right. And, and that this is the cue that some of these people are taking is from the president. And, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, generalize about 
law enforcement because I have great respect for them. But more and more we hear about January 6th, the more that we see that some of those folks were either former or current members of police departments. And, and, and that's quite disappointing to me. Yeah. The next item may be a, a good warning for our student listeners. Alexi McAmmon made her name as a political reporter at the online news site Axios and was tapped to become the next editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. Condé Nast, Teen Vogue's publisher, announced this past week in an internal email that amid pressure from staff, readers, and at least two advertisers, that Alexi McAdam would not be joining Condé mm-hmm. Nast. Ms. McAdam, while she established herself as a prominent political reporter and as a contributor to MSNBC and NBC News, in 2019, she was even named Emerging Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists. She would become the third Black editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. But what had transpired is that earlier on when she was a teenager, she had actually put posts on the internet that, you know, used uh, slurs against Asians and slurs against gay people. And that became kind of the, the justification ultimately for her to have to revisit these issues. And I'm just curious as to, as you look at this story, you know, now she actually, by the way, had apologized for these same tweets uh, when someone else had brought them to everyone's attention sort of back in 2019. And then she actually deleted them. But what had happened and what, you know, whatever is on the internet almost is always accessible, but somebody had taken screenshots of the old tweets and it was those that got recirculated on social media after her hiring announcement on March 5th. So ultimately had Ulta Beauty, which is a big, you know, beauty concern, a retailer, and then Burt's Bees, both major advertisers on Teen Vogue had suspended their ads in the publication. It probably didn't help that her original comments were derogatory stereotypes about Asians and were among them, given the kind of the heightened concerns about violence and harassment directed at Asian Americans mm-hmm. most recently. Gary, should what a person posted on the internet as a teenager disqualify them for jobs later? I would say generally, that's debatable, Mike. I would say specifically in this case, no. And then you might say, well, Gary, double standard, you just sort of, you know, hammered the guy from, you know, Jay Baker. Jay's an adult, Uh right? And he's in a position of responsibility. And the offensive social media was recent. I thought this was a an overreaction by uh-huh. Teen Vogue. Look, her now now, co- now according to now according to this, it, the Teen Vogue didn't exit her, you know, didn't yeah. fire her. She stepped back, which is kind of interesting too. But I'm just point. wondering if to to your point though, where where I think you were going is if she had not stepped down, should right. Condi Nast have let her go if if she didn't offer to step down? Yeah, I would have I would have stuck by her, Mike. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just think so young, we don't know much at that age. And clearly, she's a different person today than she was then. And social media is forever. It is a, as you say, a good lesson for young people. But if she was pushed, I would think that would be a regrettable decision. 
absent her qualifications, I, I don't know whether, yeah. she, you know, about, there was some debate about that. I've read about that. Seems like a very impressive person. Uh, no, no, if, very uh, impressive reporter. I've seen her reporting. She's very, very strong. What but, do you think, Mike? What's your view? Well, I, I mean, I understand from a business concern, mm -hmm. you know, why Condé Nast might ultimately be concerned itself. Yeah. You know, and, and, and in some ways, kudos to her almost not forcing the decision on her new employer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But, you know, I'm sure there are things that I said or did as a teenager that I would regret today, mm -hmm. right? And, and so from, from that perspective, it's a little disturbing. So I, I, I think what I, would, what I would say, particularly to the students you have in the classroom, Gary, is, you know, be careful. Yeah, totally. <laughs> in a different set of diversity concerns in the news this past week, Columbia University is the subject of some social media backlash from conservatives after media reports that the New York City-based Ivy League institution was planning to host diverse graduation virtual ceremonies in April with options for Native Americans, Asians, Latinos, Blacks, LGBTQ+, or first-generation and low-income mm -hmm. students, respectively. In a three-tweet series, the university responded to the backlash, saying that reports and previous tweets misrepresent the university's multicultural graduation celebrations, and that the celebrations are voluntary and open to every student. And, and it went on to say the smaller celebratory events held for particular communities are in addition to, not mm -hmm. instead of, the main commencement and class day graduation ceremonies. Others on social media have defended Columbia, saying the events are a celebration of multiculturalism and diversity. I know my alma mater, Georgetown University, for instance, hosts multicultural graduation ceremonies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, since Columbia issued its original announcement of, of these events, the university has gone in and edited its webpage and has changed the name for these events from multicultural graduation ceremonies to multicultural graduation celebrations. So there's a little, they thought maybe there's a little confusion that people are looking at ceremonies and thinking that's the actual graduation. Yeah. Gary, are conservatives making a mountain out of a molehill here? Or should Columbia University have done a better job communicating? Both. I think both, Mike. You know, uh, conservatives and many Republicans we can see are focused on culture wars right now. And, and I think this is an extension of that, that they want people to be essentially pissed off about these kinds of things. I applaud Columbia University for bringing people together and for these kinds of uh, building communities in this way. I think it's terrific. And look, I came from a company, we had these kinds of affinity groups inside the organization, right. and they were wonderful for the right. company, for the people, for those of us who needed to learn. So I applaud them. And at the same time, maybe they should have been a little bit more clear at Columbia about exactly what this 
was going yeah, to. I think you're right. I mean, it, although it does smack of the kind of trolling that we saw with the announcements around Dr. Seuss, right? Yes. So, so I totally agree with you. Now that we're kind of in a political vein here, in a recent show, we gave our assessment of how <laughs> Jen Psaki is doing as White House press secretary, and, and we were pretty generous. But a friend reminded me that despite all the White House briefings, that President Biden still had not held a press conference himself. And when he does on March 25th, it will end the longest stretch for a new president to go without a lengthy open Q&A session with the news media. Then this weekend, Frank Bruni, New York Times columnist, wrote a kind of a tongue-in-cheek column titled, Biden Has Disappeared. <laughs> and he wrote that, for the life of me, I can't find Joe Biden. Should we send a search party? Sure, I see photographs and video footage of him. I know there's a man with Biden's name in the White House, but he doesn't resemble the Biden I observed and even interacted with a few times during his four and a half decade political career. This new Biden lacks old Biden's goofy exuberance, cartoonish loquaciousness, and all around indiscipline. This new Biden lacks the old Biden's inimitable Bidenness. He also makes the point that this new Biden has been virtually gaff-free. So Gary, you worked as Governor George Pataki's press secretary back in his first term in office. Did you and the team around him worry about exposure to the media? Yeah, and and look, you know, it, it these things move in cycles, and the timing of these press conferences depend on the news and when you want to say something, and certainly. President Biden has things he should communicate with the American public. So to, to Frank Bruni's point, I would get Biden out there more. I would have done it sooner. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We have many other challenges to help people understand what the president is thinking. These sessions are very important to see him stand and sort of deliver. And to Frank Bruni, I would say this isn't the same Biden, right? I mean, it just isn't. You know, when you're 78 years old, you're not the same as you are when you're 58. And I think it would be really well received if the White House admitted that. Not that he's disabled mentally in any way, but this is a man yeah. whose personality, whose outlook have progressed in a way mm -hmm. that happens for someone of, of his age. I, I just think people like Biden. Yeah. Sure, he might trip over himself literally a few times, but the more that he could be seen, you know, in a reasonable way, I think is better for the yeah. White House and for the country. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't get too concerned. I think in politics and probably also in business, there have been times, you know, when it's probably astute to yeah. not, you know, enter the fray. I also think they've been incredibly busy out of the chute. Yeah. He clearly is not missing from the airwaves. He's just not having that back and forth with the news media that I think a lot of news people really look for. One last item, and I'll probably ask this of, of, of Jolie Hunt as well, which is we've had a lot of discussions here mm. about how brands are being prompted to take political positions by employees and activists. A little over a week ago, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce and two major companies headquartered in Georgia, Coca-Cola and Home Depot, voiced their opposition 
to a legislative effort led by some Republicans in the Georgia State Legislature to restrict access to voting in different ways. They're gonna require an excuse be submitted to, to vote absentee, require absentee voters to share driver's license numbers, photograph state IDs, shorten the window of time that in which one can request absentee ballots, limit the early voting time period, throw out provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct, and my favorite, clarify that no one could give food or water to people standing wow. in line to vote. So Gary, how might it make sense for Coca-Cola, Home Depot, and the Georgia Chamber to take this kind of public position? And should it prompt executives with other Georgia companies to consider doing the same? Well, Mike, let's take the action first, which given the lack of evidence about voter fraud, particularly in Georgia, by the way, yeah. where it's been studied many times by Republicans and the election, there was no widespread voter fraud found. So clearly these steps, which you've described, are indeed voter suppression steps. Mm -hmm. If you're not solving a problem, you're doing something else. And the only logical conclusion is that this is to suppress votes. If you're not aghast at this as a leader of a company that's headquartered in that state, I'm just would be so disappointed in those leaders. I know that having good relationships with the legislative bodies in your home states is particularly important, but this cuts to the heart of our democracy, is trying to prevent people from voting rather than encouraging. So I, I would hope that others would get on board. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think it comes to the heart of the issue in terms of civic duty and what's the most fundamental right of a citizen but to vote. Yeah. And I would think that fundamentally, you know, companies that have matters before governments would want to make sure that parties are fully represented. Yeah. And, and what's worse, Mike, is, and, and I've touted a couple of times on, on the Crux a newsletter I get every morning called Popular Information. And it, it, it focuses on this issue largely and has resulted in changes. The worst thing I'm seeing in some of these cases is people who issued statements that they wouldn't make donations to legislators mm. who support this kind of policy. And yet some of those companies have apparently crossed their fingers when they made that pledge. What's that old adage? Well, watch what we do, not what we say. Exactly. <laughs> that to me is the worst thing you could do uh, on this issue. So great, great topics today, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, looking forward to our conversation with Jolie. Our guest today on The Crux is Jolie Hunt, the founder and CEO of Hunt & Gather, a global marketing and communications agency. Hunt & Gather specializes in forming meaningful relationships between brands and leaders. At least, Jolie, that's what it says on your website. So we're gonna- It so sounds correct. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> right. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, as well as providing strategic communications counsel to some of the biggest and fastest growing companies in the world. You know, I, I first met Jolie when I was at GE, and she was director of public relations at the Financial Times. So obviously somebody you should know when you work for a big conglomerate like GE. And I was immediately very jealous that at a young age, Jolie's professional network was already so much deeper and broader 
than my own, and I'm going to ask her about that. Jolie has also served as Global Director of Corporate and Business Affairs at IBM, Senior Vice President, Global Head of Brand and PR at Thomson Reuters. And before starting her own agency, Jolie was the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at AOL. She is one of the most respected people in communications. Jolie, welcome to the crux and welcome back, sort of, to your alma mater, Boston University. Thank you so much, Gary and Mike, for having me on. It's a very sweet homecoming, although it, it does remind me of my age, which is, is a little depressing, but we'll, we can keep it moving from there. So <laughs> as long as you're not worrying about that last paper that you can't remember if you submitted No, it. oh God, there's, there's stress and then there's, then there's stress for your essays. Ooh. Yeah, well, I wanna, our listeners obviously can't see it, Julie, but you, for this taping, <laughs> you, you put on a special sweatshirt. Why don't you tell us about it? Oh, geez. Well, I went to BU in the 90s when Michael Jordan was it. And so I, I put on my Bulls sweatshirt that I was confessing still fits, which I don't know if that says more about the COVID-19 or the freshman 15. But in, a, in any event, I'm wearing it. I'm wearing it proudly. I got a I got an eye roll from my husband and a thumbs up from my six-year-old. So, you know, I think it, I think it tracks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to stick with the BU theme here at the beginning. Please. Mike and I, I currently teach obviously at Com, and, and Mike has as well. Name one thing you learned at BU that still sticks with you in your work today. I remember vividly having a professor stand up in my early days at BU and say, write me your best sentence and I will cut it in half. And I still employ, <laughs> I employ that more than I wish I, I did <laughs> on a regular basis. And it's true. I mean, I think people, people start writing like there's, there's infinite amounts of time and interest. And the reality certainly for communication students and professionals is that there's no time. So how can we cut through the noise and sharpen up the language? So that, that always stuck with me. That's terrific. That's, I may steal that, Julie. Please. My, my classes, I'm, I'm correcting papers, not correcting, grading papers right now <laughs> for, for my students. All right. One of the things we talk about, obviously, with our students is about their careers. We often have conversations outside of the sort of the concepts and curriculum. And that's one of the things that Mike and I brought is our experience over the years to, to BU. And I tell my students that even though a first job in the service industry might not seem significant, there are many skills you learn on the job that employers will respect in the future. And your first job was as a car salesperson in New York. Did you learn anything from that job that you still remember today? I learned everything from that job, Gary. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's actually one of my first jobs. I started working at 11 and I started selling cars at 15. So you can see the natural wow. progression there. And I, I grew up in upstate New York, outside of Albany. And I met these guys that owned a car dealership. They had these crazy commercials. And I said, I think you should hire me to go and, and do your commercials. I think I do a better job. And they said, okay, kid, you know, come down to the lot and, you know, make this commercial. And so they, and, they, and I'll never forget, they gave me $80 one Saturday for four hours of my time. And I think the minimum wage then was $5 and 15 cents. And so I was, you know, I was rich by, by all. All comparables. And so 
I basically worked my way up and kept saying, well, what, what can I do next? And one day the owner said, well, why don't you sell cars? And I said, okay. I mean, I, I, I don't have a license. I don't know how to drive, but he said, no, no, it, it, it doesn't matter. And, and I shadowed this wonderful guy named Doc and listened to Tony Robbins for, for like seven hours <laughs> in the basement of a car dealership. And I, I, I manifested the sale and I sold three cars my first day. Wow. And I mean, that was the summer. I think that summer. That Did they give you a cut? I made $45,000 that summer oh. at 15 years old. And if I was smart, I would have, you know, invested in Microsoft or GE or Amazon. And instead I just treated all my friends to bathing suits and uh, ice cream. But that, that te- tells you everything you need to know. It, it, and the honest answer is I learned everything because look, communications and life, it's all about mm-hmm. people, right? And so much of that experience and the imposter syndrome that comes from being a literal child selling a grown-up uh-huh. uh, a car. I had to learn how to read credit reports at 15. And I and it was somewhat heartbreaking to understand at 15 whether this this couple could afford the right. financing of this car over 60 months. And and I and I think it it forced me to learn how to pay attention because if you are 15 projecting as someone who knows what they're doing. And and I'll never forget the first day I forgot someone's name and I thought, shit, I mean, what? how do I ask this person their name again? And, right. and I got really, really good at remembering people's names in every detail because it was, it was the only, the only palette I had to draw from. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't tell you about anything that I hadn't read. So I, I had to pick up on the cues of exactly. what people told me. So I, I loved that job. I mean, it was definitely questionable. <laughs> a few different yeah. fronts. Great story. What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting schooled by a car salesman named Doc. That is great. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Gary, Gary mentioned in your bio that at a fairly early age, you actually became the head of public relations for, you know, the vaunted, the financial <laughs> times, you know, what, how did that come about? You know, I love the FT and I'm, I'm still actually doing some work with the FT all these years later. The, the honest answer is, you know, I, I got recruited for a different job there and I, I made an impression and I was deeply curious. And I remember the head of PR complaining all the time. And I remember just thinking, well, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? And so my boyfriend at the time said, I, I think you should go for that job. And I said, oh, you know, I'm 24 and I don't have an advanced degree. And he said, but you just, you think about that job all the time. You know how to do that job. And so I waited a month and then I thought, screw it. I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring. And thankfully, I didn't know that 1,100 other people had that idea as well, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm confident, but I'm wow. not insane. And so I, I beat out all those people. And I just, I knew what to do in that job is the, is the honest answer. And I was paired working for Lionel Barber, who was the U.S. managing editor then, and went on to become the, the global editor of DFT from 2015, late 2015 to 2020. And, and whose book I'm actually helping him promote in America right oh, now. And, and, you know, it's, it's, those are the ties that bind. And I, I think in the same way, I mean, the, 
the car salesman analogy salesperson, I guess I should say rings true. I mean, every room I walked into, people wanted to underestimate me and I'd, I'd smile and I'd say, well, I'm the one that's going to get it done. So you can quiz me on my, my lack of Oxbridge education, or you can relax and we can figure out how to make magic together. And so it was an amazing experience and I traveled all over the world. And I, my joke is that I will forever bleed pink. <laughs> I, I saw recently where you had said that it took you a long time to make peace with the fact that your job at AOL was not really a fit. And, and yet it ultimately led to you starting your own company. What were some of the significant events that made you realize you wanted to start your own shop? Well, I mean, the, the real answer, Mike, is I ran so far in the other direction. You know, I, I, I was working for AOL. It was my first CMO post in, in my career. And, and I remember early days, someone saying, look, these are the paths. You can, you can be a chief communications officer and eventually it's assumed that you want to be a chief marketing officer or you can be a CEO. And I thought, well, I'm just never going to be a CEO. What does that mean? And, and it, it just was a it was a terrible fit for me, right? It was, you know, 19 hour days and my hair fell out and my nails stopped growing and, and working for people that I just did not track with morally, to be totally honest. And mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I just didn't think I could hitch my star to that wagon. And so leaving was quite catastrophic, bombastic. I mean, you know, <laughs> and enter platitudes. I mean, it, I really, a lot of my self-worth was was caught up in what my job was and I had mm. I had never failed. And so here I was failing publicly and all of the people that lifted me up into that role miraculously disappeared when my relationship with the CEO took a turn. And so now it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Hindsight mm -hmm. is, a, is a truly beautiful thing. But in that moment in time, I really struggled with, you know, what do, who do I say I am when I walk into a room and, you know, everyone knows and isn't it embarrassing? So, yeah. but look, starting my company, I, I there's a step in between in that I, I, I went for all these interviews with, you know, mm -hmm. Spotify and NBC and, and a, a lot of companies that we've all, I'm sure, done work with. And I just remember thinking, I, I don't, I don't have it in me right now. I just, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it was PTSD or a broken heart or, or whatever it was. And I just thought I, I remember asking the NBC recruiter, what if Matt Lauer wakes up tomorrow and he decides he doesn't like me? And they didn't have a really good answer. And so I thought, no, I'm just not going to do that. And so, you know, starting my company was a very happy accident. And seven years later, you know, offices in London and New York and LA and, and living life truly on my own terms and, and learning so much. I just, I never could have believed that the thing I created for myself would be so rewarding and interesting. You know, most of us, most of us always think about a narrative in terms of going into business that it takes an incredible amount of, of, of bravery and chutzpah, you know, but it sounds like you kind of, kind of went there for different reasons and, and, and kind of reshaped your own world. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm all for bravery and chutzpah. It's 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 definitely there someplace. I think it was more this reckoning of how I wanted to spend my time, mm -hmm. and so much of our lives as communications professionals are believing and espousing in someone else, in an enterprise, in a person, in a board, in an idea. Mm -hmm. 
And I just couldn't reconcile with the unknown of, wait a second, this, this, this credo seems to have changed. And the, the, the math that I used was growing up in, in this profession, it, it felt 85% about the work and 15% about the politics. Mm-hmm. And I always knew I could do the work and you, you get good enough at the politics that it doesn't take over your life. And, and I don't know if it was the the 08 crash or, but something changed and those numbers, in my opinion, inversed and it became 85% about the politics Hmm. and 15% about the work. And I thought, well, I I just, that math doesn't work for me. And so starting my own thing, you know, just, it it was, it was not premeditated Hmm. and and people for years have been saying, you should start your own thing. And I remember thinking, why, what what would I, what would I do? What, you know, what would my business card say? And I just, I really didn't want to be a phony, you know, to, to, to quote Salinger, right? I just thought I have to actually stand for something. And, and how can I take this breadth of knowledge from, you know, living and working in China and in London and in Boston and New York and all these people and places I've collected and, and how can that make some sort of patchwork quilt that anyone would want to partner with or pay for? And so it, no one was more happily surprised than I was <laughs> that, you know, it worked and it continues to work so it's it's a beautiful thing yeah so i julie i i described very briefly and probably inadequately your firm at the beginning of this tell us in your words what your firm does sure i mean we we exist a little bit in shadow too so that's that's more Mm -hmm. my fault gary than your fault look when i set out i i recognized three gaps in the market the first is bringing content brands to life. I think growing up at the FT Mm -hmm. and at Reuters, our business was journalism. And so much of the the way we communicated was how do we position these journalists and these ideas in the public domain. And so a lot of that part of the work I took with me to hunt and gather and thought, well, how does Daniel Eck and Spotify show up in the world? And how do we take the senior team from Hulu to Can Lion? And how do we open the, the wing or figure out the future of everything for the Wall Street Journal? So that has been this amazing gift of how do you curate people and ideas to coalesce around typically an, an in-person event. COVID has been obviously the great killer of many things, including in real life, anything. And then the second part of the work was really kind of my favorite when I was in-house, which is this whole notion of executive comms. How do you work alongside an editor, a CEO, a a board member, a C-suite team to figure out who they are and what they stand for? We do a lot of that work now for the chairman of IBM. We we worked for the chief growth officer. We worked the head of collaboration for Cisco and the chief brand officer for AT&T and taking very time-starved individuals with big platforms and simplifying down to who are you, what do you stand for, and and who's actually going to care. Because we're curating so many of the media events, there's a nice symbiosis of saying, hey, Dow Jones, you should know this person because they, you know, you're you're doing a session on the future of work. Well, guess what? This is the, the latest and greatest founder of the future of work. And then the third part of our business is is a bit of a reimagined PR firm. And I, I, I if you were going to start a PR firm in the last seven to 10 years, it would not look like, with due respect to a lot of people we, we came up with, one of these big, you know, monolith conglomerates. I mean, you wouldn't have 400 offices. You wouldn't have 15,000 people. You would really specialize in what are the times need today and how do you bring together a coalition of the willing? And so it's it's been 
incredible to work with brands as big as AT&T and Gap Inc and Amazon and then emergent, you know, fashion businesses to, you know, working with Kanye West on his, you know, sneaker and apparel business. So it, it runs the Good gamut, that. that's for sure. Good luck with that. Oh yeah. I've already done that. Had a couple <laughs> tours of duty and I, I, I have a great sneaker collection to show for it. <laughs> that's worth it right there. Exactly. Totally. <laughs> So I, I joked at the beginning in the intro about your network, but I meant it. Mm -hmm. So a perfect follow-on question here is, you talked about connecting people. So how important are relationships today as we move to a more digital sort of society? And how do you do it? How do you build the kind of network that you have? Well, Gary, you and my husband could ask the same question here because I think it puzzles him <laughs> as well. I mean, I love people as cheesy as that sounds. And it's actually how I ended up at BU. I remember looking at the course catalog and reading the description for advertising and reading the description for public relations. And I remember thinking, well, advertising, oh, you know, you have to be creative and yeah. have all these ideas. I, I definitely don't think I'm creative. And I remember reading the creative writing brief and I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of writing. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and then, and then I remember the, the public relations description was, you know, I wrongly thought it was, hey, you just have to relate to the public. I, I can do that. And the dirty little secret is you actually have to be quite creative and you know, there's a lot of writing involved. So <laughs> my deductive reasoning got me where I needed to be, but not in not in the right way. And, and look, the, the honest answer about people and networks and, and you're generous to say it. I mean, it's it's my love language. It's what lifts me up. I mean, I, I it's, it's also something that I just am interested. I'm curious. Yeah. I want I want to know why this chef is a chef. I want to know why this model is a model. I want to know why this person working in this restaurant has such a smile on their face. And, and so I think for me, it's always been around human connection. And that was what I figured out early on brought me energy and, and a lot of people in my life as well. And, and you were one of the few people in my in my 20s when I when I was coming up, especially at the FD, you, you as well, Mike, there were people that completely dismissed me as a 25 year old kid, you know, in some job that she likely didn't yeah. deserve. And then there was a cache of professionals you know, I know you've had Mike O'Neill on this program and David Demarest and John Awada and Betty Hudson. And that really gave me the respect that I hadn't yet earned at that age to just be curious about me and my life. And, and you never forget that. And so I think throughout my career in life, I've always thought, you know, about the people and what they can do. And, and, and it, my husband is a sidebar, runs HR for a big auction house. And I say, oh, you know, you should connect this person, that person, they would love each other. And, and he just looks at me and he will list eight things, eight ways it could go wrong. Well, you know, what if, what if this one's late? What if they don't do exactly. this? And I, and I just think that would never happen. Just, just, you know, just do it. And so, you know, I think I pay attention too, right? It's like, I, I, I'm old school. I send cards to people. I send gestures when babies are born. I, I take people out when they lose their job. I mean, I, I, I really try to be a decent friend in the process because such a good kind reminder. Of all we have, yeah. Such a good reminder in our industry as we continue to lean on digital tools, analytics. Yeah. The human side of this business is the important part. Yeah, and, and I'm, by the way, I'm terrible on 
digital mediums. I mean, I, I don't have a Twitter account. Don't invite me to Clubhouse. I'm, I'm just not coming. <laughs> like, I'm, I cannot tell you how many people invited me to Clubhouse in the last three weeks, uh, including some well-known people. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm never coming. Like, <laughs> stop <laughs> inviting me. And, and I think you just have to know authentically who you are. And I mean, I, I, I obviously exist and I do a lot of work in the digital space, but it's not, you know, you're not going to see what I had for breakfast this morning. It's just, <laughs> nobody cares. Maybe for others, but not for me. Now in your work, you, you counsel many business leaders and you help reshape their brand identity. In today's world where many consumers and, and prospective employees are making decisions about how to interact with companies on the basis of their social beliefs, their social stances, what advice do you give leaders to help them navigate social issues? Yeah, th this is, a this is, as I'm sure you can imagine, is a very big topic and has been in the past year, but I'd even posit the last few years. Look, I, I think I think people know, right? Mm -hmm. If you stand for something, they can feel it. And if you don't stand for something, they will know. And so it's it's not so much the the brand identity part that I work on. It's really getting to pardon the pun, getting mm -hmm. to the crux of uh -huh. of what like someone that. yeah <laughs> of what of of who you are and what you stand for and do the publics that you serve understand that and look the 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 last year has been so challenging for everyone that i think that there is a there is a jump to rage in in yeah. so many of mm -hmm. our communications of our reactions and it could be for a myriad reasons right it could be you're stuck in your house you're homeschooling your kids you you got passed up for a promotion you lost a family member, you got sick. I mean, you know, the, the list is infinite. And so I do think that people have had to walk the walk in, mm -hmm. in, in these moments. And I'd say it, it has remained challenging to educate people on not just paying lip service to whatever the, the topic of the moment is, yeah. but to actually look at your organization, look at the way that you lead, and do the work as trite as that may sound. And I think so many people just put up the, put up the black box on Instagram yeah. and they thought that that was it. It's like, well, that's not really it. And look, I, even in my own team, I had to have a very sensitive conversation with an employee last, last week who's Korean American about safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how she gets to work and how she gets home from work. And yeah. that is that is not a conversation I thought we would be having in the year 2021, right? So it is fascinating though. I mean, it's it's like this past week, obviously, the horrors of what happened in Atlanta and and in some vein, you know, the events that have been happening, as you say, for for years. But in another vein, it was also interesting, sort of another story out of Atlanta the state legislatures looking at you know changes in election law and what was fascinating to me is that Coca-Cola, Home Depot and the state chamber decided to come out and take a position against all of these proposals and i and i wonder how companies navigate that and have you had kind of similar situations because i would imagine after Coca-Cola and Home Depot do something like that then there's a host of other Georgia-based companies that start to say, well, if I'm Aflac 
if I'm Delta Airlines, if I'm Cox Communications, do I start, you know, do I need to look at this? Yes. I mean, it's a big question, right? I think you have to go back to the bravery and chutzpah part of what it takes to lead organizations in this moment. And I don't know that people have all of the answers right now. And in a place where there's political hotbed like Georgia, I, I think you could you could easily see what both sides want as part of that equation. I have always taken the approach, especially growing up in media and in, in the news business, that newspapers shouldn't endorse candidates. I always found it to be completely wild. I thought that's not our job. Our job is is to give you information and and you are smart enough and able-bodied enough to decide. So, you know, without weighing in, I, I think a lot of time goes into some of these big decisions. And you saw it in the in the previous presidential administration with a lot of big tech businesses and whether or not they were going to be part of the president's commission or not and what that determined. And, and look, I do think we're living through a moment of cancel culture in a yeah. pretty remarkable way. And I think the, the wick is very short. So anything that you say or do can really creep up on you. So it's it's a little bit of a non-answer because I, yeah. I, well, I so understand. To stay, it's so hard to stay ahead of the curve, if you will, because things are moving so quickly, right? Yes. And also taking a beat, you know, I always, I always think, you know, let's respond and not react. And sometimes mm-hmm. to respond, you actually need to understand what is happening and take a moment to step back from it and say, well, what does this mean? And especially for a lot of the businesses you're mentioning, they do business all over the world. So mm-hmm. yes, they may be headquartered in, in Georgia, but those decisions have, have an after effect in many, many different markets. And so, especially as someone who's lived and worked in different parts of the world, it's you're very aware when the other place makes a decision that impacts how you live Absolutely. your life. Yeah. And, you know, that, that sense of consistency or, or commitment to consistency, both in your actions and your words, but in your global operations, is increasingly important internally. Julie, right? Yes. In other words, your employees see if you're applying your values inconsistently across marketplaces and regions and that kind of thing. And, and I just think there's a lot of growth for companies in that space. And I love, I love your phrase about, you know, looking at your organization, looking at how you lead and do your work. I mean, that's, and you think back to people like Ken Frazier from Merck back yeah. in the Trump administration, and the kind of leadership that he provided, and, and it, it's a case study that we can all learn from, right? I totally agree. And, you know, I, I did a lot of work early days with Brian Chesky and the team at Airbnb, and watching how Brian and that team have navigated the pandemic when 80% of their business went away, and then ending 2020 by going public, and, and just being so clear in how they communicate. Mm-hmm. I, I was amazed and so proud of him and that enterprise for how humane they were in describing exactly what happened to their business, exactly. They, they put up a directory of everyone that lost their jobs so that you could search them. I cannot tell you how Many times I've thought when when another big firm does a round of layoffs, I think, where do I find those people? I bet there's amazing people. I, you cannot find them. And so even even the 
those, those seemingly simple gestures of how do you catalog your talent and give people dignity as they're leaving. I think that's actually what matters. And that's what people pay attention to in terms of what's truly outstanding communications. And you have to be a good person, yeah, <laughs> or at right. least a part of you has to be a good person to, to have the empathy and the- To want the, to do that, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's, you know, it's a good lesson too for not to lecture anyone, but for both in-house and agencies who've had layoffs, a lot of layoffs in the past yep. past year, largely not their own fault. So so let me uh, get back to your agency here for a minute. In our, in our crisis classes at BU, I talk a lot about startups. Mm-hmm. Who've had, who've had problems? You think of WeWork and Uber and Theranos. We're reading Bad Blood, Julia. In my, class. I love that book. Great, great book. But it strikes me that, and you do work with startups that they have great ideas, they have smart people, and they don't get some of the things that we're talking about, and it leads them into bad space. I mean, clearly WeWork you know, is maybe the best example of that. Theranos, you know, they were just lying to everybody (laughs) that they talked to. Yes. So do these startups that you work with, do they take communications, culture, brand seriously? Well, here's a fun fact. My husband was early days at WeWork and worked there for four years um, in an HR capacity. And they were a, a client of mine and my son was in the school, WeGrow. So I know a lot about WeWork, so we won't make this the WeWork podcast. Look, I, th- I think you can't universally give an answer that says, yes, they care or no, they don't. I think on the whole, communications is and marketing is definitely an afterthought to whatever the thing is that people are trying to do. So in the case of WeWork, it was, it was spaces and, and scale, right? I do a lot with startups, you know, working with a vertical farm, I'm working with a business that's on the future of fertility. It's, you know, the future of work and, and where people are, are going to occupy different spaces. And so I think that my general theme is that you get funding to do the thing that you set out to do. Mm-hmm. And all of the pressure that you get from your investors and the people who, who put in the seed capital for you want you to be the best at making your widget, yep. right? And then there's a really striking moment when they say, enough about the widget, nobody has heard of you. Why has no one heard of you? I'm talking about you to my friends, to my colleagues, to my family. Why hasn't anyone heard of you? And then there's this holy shit moment. We need we need the business story. We need everyone to, to pay attention to who we are. And it's this literal pants on fire race to getting the journal, the FT, Business Insider, Forbes, Fortune, you name it, CNBC, right. Bloomberg, to pay attention to them. And it's mine and our job to say, hold, hold on, hold yeah. on, everybody. Like, let, let's figure out actually what you want people to know about you and where the motivation may lie. And so look, I've, I've, I did a lot of work early days with my business and startups. And I basically said never again. (laughs) It was, it was, you know, it was every, everyone needed everything in in that moment. And I thought, I'm just, I'm, I don't know that I care enough about, you know, your, your timetable to blow up my own life. And, and I've softened on that stance a little bit in that, you know, really people who are innovating and making changes to our food supply, to how, you know, our reproductive rights, these are big, complicated topics that do require very thoughtful and artful communications. Exactly. And so I, I do think 
my picker has gotten a little bit better in terms of, you know, who is behind these businesses and these ideas. And I do think people are trying to figure it out in a more material way. I, I think patience is a virtue that doesn't always exist. I mean, you, you have both ends exactly. of the spectrum, right? You have, you know, you, you come out of big businesses and you think, could you guys just speed it up a, a little bit here? We don't, we don't need six weeks between now and the next, you know, update on this topic. And then you look at some of the startup businesses and you're like, can, can you guys just buckle up and Chill. hang on a second? Yeah. So yeah, there's like a Goldilocks metaphor in there someplace of like, you need, you need, you need bits of, of all of it to get people to pay attention. And I'd say the, I'd say the startup world, the, th the skin is so thin yep. that people cannot handle anything. I mean, as, as someone who's had a front row seat for a lot of startup businesses that we're talking about, I mean, you'd be amazed at how, you know, if you're the CEO, if you're Jeff Immelt or you're Randall Stevenson and, you know, a CEO that's used to getting, you know, Lou Gerstner, all the sort of greats, right? And, and you see some of the startup CEOs who obsess over a word, a phrase, a something, and you just think, ooh, you know, this isn't going to end well because yeah. this yeah. is this is chapter well, that, one, my friends. <laughs> that's certainly true of uh, Elizabeth Holmes and, and oh, Therma, yeah. right? The, the, you know, skin was so thin, it was barely there, and that led to a lot of problems. And, you know, I was thinking with your networking skills too, Julie, you know, putting the vertical farm together with the future of fertility putting yeah. those folks together <laughs> or am I misunderstanding here? Uh, you know what? It, you could be really onto something here. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll take that offline. I'll, okay. I'll keep you posted. Maybe that's our billion dollar idea. All right. So one of the things that also fascinates me these days and students as well is the world of influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm an old school reputation guy. So I look at these things and I say, wow, the risk here is high. And, and you, you know, there's a story a day about some brand dropping some influencer. What would be your advice to, to or what is your advice to companies thinking about that approach? So I, I have had to evolve my thinking on this. If you had asked me a few years ago, if I would ever pay anyone to be part of our communication strategy. I mean, I think you, when you grow up in comms, <laughs> you, you know, you, you get very snobby about the advertising folks down the hall and you say, well, they have to buy everything and we have to earn everything. And there's a, there's a nobility in, in earning people's trust and, and the coverage that you receive. I, I've had to do an about face in that, look, the reality is that to capture people's attention, the modalities have changed. So in the past decades, you would have a TV screen, you would have billboards, you would have ways to reach people in a fairly mass way. And if you think about it, the last time you've crossed the street, is anyone looking at each other? Is anyone looking up? They are all looking at their phones, the right? Yep. And yep. so it's just, it's, it's wisdom of crowds here that is as people's attention has shifted, and their technology has shifted, you have to go where, where your audience is. And so look, universally, I don't think paying Kylie Jenner to post about your thing is gonna dramatically change the outcome of your business. But like right now I'm working with a business that's part of Gap Inc and we're doing mm -hmm. a big inclusive fashion launch. And we have gone to a lot of key influencers in the space to amplify that message. 
And it was so smart because these, this is their crowd. And the, if yeah. you're, if you're shopping for clothes and you're a size 18, you have a very specific aesthetic of people that you are following and you're paying attention. So I do think in terms of, of how brands and companies are showing up, it's, it's discovery, right? I don't think you should put the, the entire future of the enterprise in the hands of someone who may or may not get X number of, of clicks or comments, right. but as a, as a force multiplier for your, your message and the way that you're dealing with your community, I think it makes a heck of a lot of sense to use all the tools in your, in your path. And I think influencers can get a dirty name mm -hmm. <laughs> because it seems so universal and it's like, oh, everyone's an influencer now, you know, and we've, we've all, you know, walked down the street and seen someone making some ridiculous face and <laughs> with some ridiculous <laughs> background and, you know, I mean, okay, <laughs> but, but well, the reality is- so, so does that mean we should look for you and, and your child on TikTok videos? No, I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> you, can, you can find very cute pictures of my kids occasionally on Instagram. But no, I just, you know, my joke is like, I'm good in real life and yeah. I know who I know. And yeah. I tend to be kind of private about that. But, but I think your, your point is well taken. It almost goes back to the definition that you got back at Boston University about PR relating to publics. And yes. you know, th that's where the publics are. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, true. you are, I think, for many women in the business today, kind of an icon. You're part of a growing number, yet still few. Uh, female CEOs in the agency world of marketing and PR. And, and you accomplished that by, in a sense, starting your own company. Mm -hmm. But throughout larger agencies, the, the numbers still aren't high enough. And we're still struggling as a profession with diversity, equity, inclusion overall. From where you sit, what can we do to change that? Well, I think, you know, as cheesy as it is, I mean, you have to see it to be it. And I didn't think that there was anything unusual about being a woman starting a business. And uh, to some degree, I still don't. And diversity is a funny thing because I have quite a diverse workforce and it's still the number one topic I think about every day of my life is how to make it more diverse and more inclusive. And and so, look, I, I do think that people are paying attention, which is great. It's harder than it should be to hire people in, from different backgrounds and from a, a different places, different perspectives. I think a truly diverse workforce should include not just racial and ethnic diversity, but, you know, prime example for me, I have, I have little kids. There's not many people on my team in New York that have children. So I also think having a having a diverse workforce means parents, right? It's mm -hmm. it's understanding how to make sure people can show up as their whole selves at work. And I, I think where where I see the line is is different for me. You know, I'm 42, almost 43, and we slack everything. And I would never have dreamed in my early career to let the entire company know that I had a dentist appointment or I was knocking off a bit early to meet my mom for a cappuccino or, or whatever the updates are. And, you know, there is part of me that thinks, did, did we need to know that? And so I, I do think diversity is an evolution. And... I've had people say, oh, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, you as a, as a woman and as a mom. I had both of my babies since starting my business. And I just, I guess you just 
do what you know how to do, right? I, I, I certainly don't feel iconic. I feel tired most days. <laughs> and I think you just have to, you know, it's, it's constant, right? I, I interviewed an amazing man who just took a job in, in Chicago the other day and, and uh, like a, a black straight male. And I, and I, I said, you know, I'm really struggling on my leadership team to have, you know, racial diversity. And he said, yes, I, you know, I, I think about this a lot. And I said, well, what's your advice? And he said, honestly, I, I only know two other people besides myself. And I've been in this industry for 15 years. And I just thought, wow, that, yeah. that is terrible. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's, it's partly exactly what you all are doing. It's, it's understanding the school age and college age people to get them on the track and to understand what even exists. And I think to farm more diverse enterprises as early in the process as possible. And I do think that it requires a different level of stewardship once people do come into your ranks. And I've, I've had this happen with a lot of women that they just don't know how to negotiate their salaries. And so I, I, I literally stopped a young woman that I was offering a job to two weeks ago when I asked her what her salary expectations were and she started fumbling and I said, stop. <laughs> I said, would, would you like some coaching? And she said, I absolutely would. And I said, here's how to do it. And then I said, okay, go. And she played back to me what I said to her. And I, you know, I, I gave her the job and I gave her the raise that she oh, should have great. deserved. And so I do think unless someone teaches you you really just don't know. And, and I have not had men waffle in the way that women have waffled when it comes to financials. And so I do think that figuring out, and I sit on a, a comp committee for a public board that I'm on. And so it is not for the faint of heart to talk about compensation, but I think it's, it's important when we're thinking about parity and equity all across the board that it's not just showing up, but it's also understanding your worth and, and knowing what it takes to, to earn that worth. That's terrific. Well, thank you, Julie, for being on the crux. By the way, I, was, I meant to ask you, I assume hunt and gather is just a pun. It's not a, there's not a person named gather, right? I, there's, there's not a, there's not a gather, but if you know anyone by that name, I'm, I'm I all ears. Your way. <laughs> I think it would be hilarious, but sadly, sadly, no gather. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been terrific and really, really an outstanding discussion. Julie, I'm so, yeah. so glad you made time to do it. Well, yeah. thank Thanks you. And please tell your listeners and your students that I'm always hiring and I have a real soft spot for BU and for Calm. So send them my way. Terrific. Chris, our graduate assistant who's on the line with us right now, his ears perked up when you said that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.